WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, a Saudi court has sentenced a woman to 10 lashes or whippings for challenging a ban on women driving in the conservative Muslim kingdom, Amnesty International said today, according to Reuters. The sentence was reported two days after Saudi King Abdullah granted women the right to vote and run in municipal elections. Under Saudi Arabia's strict Islamic laws, women require a male guardian's permission to work, travel abroad, or even undergo some medical surgeries. They are not allowed to drive. And in national news, Michael Jackson's personal physician, Conrad Murray, has gone on trial in Los Angeles, charged with involuntary manslaughter, according to the BBC. Prosecutors said he acted with gross negligence and gave Jackson a lethal dose of the sedative propofol the night he died in June 2009. If convicted, Dr. Murray could face four years in jail and the loss of his medical license. And in Michigan news, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder has told a Tokyo audience of Midwestern and Japanese business and political leaders that Michigan is a very different place than when he took office in January, according to the Associated Press. Snyder's office says a Republican governor told the annual meeting of the Japan Midwest U.S. Association that legislative and policy changes should open new doors for trade between Michigan and Japan. Snyder cites repealing the Michigan business tax and adopting a two-year balanced budget. Snyder's eight-day three-country trade mission began Sunday and includes stops in Japan, China, and South Korea. And on Exposure tonight, we'll be talking about many, many issues. We'll be talking about the record number of international students here at MSU, as well as how the poverty rate in America is on the rise, as well as how Illinois is trying to fight hunger by eating Asian carp. And finally, for the Michigan Storytelling segment, we will be learning about the history of puns. But in the studio right now, we have a panel of LGBT military vets, and they are here to talk about the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, which was repealed last week. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So can you guys go around and, and talk about which branch of the military you worked in and what you did? Uh, my name is John. I served in the United States Air Force for three years. I was what was known as a crew chief, which was essentially an overglorified aircraft mechanic. Uh, my name is Mark. Um, I was in the Navy uh, as a finance specialist working with the Marines and Air Force in the Pacific region. My name is Andrea, and I was in the Air Force for eight and a half years. I was an intelligence analyst and an instructor. So first off, I'm curious what you guys think of the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and, and tell me a little bit what it was like being um, an LGBT service member. To be honest, I feel a little bittersweet about it. I mean, I'm very glad that it's repealed. It needed to be repealed, but that doesn't change the heartbreak or the anger that I feel about how I was treated when I was in the service and having to lie about who I was. Um, honestly, the defining thing about that is the lying. I had to lie to people that I was close to, friends, people that I worked with. And in the military, a lot of times, you know, you have somebody's life in your hands or, you know, you're required to do a job and you can't. When you have to lie to people about something as fundamental as who, you know, you are, it, you know, it's ironic that it was started to protect morale, but I think it actually hurt it in my unit. And in the Air Force, I mean, it's the core value. One of the core values is integrity first. I mean, how can you really carry yourself with integrity when you're lying about fundamentally who you are as a person? Um my my response to it, to be perfectly honest with you, was mixed. I was happy, of course, because any time civil rights goes forward, it's a positive thing. Absolutely. Um, but I was angry because the people who propelled this particular motion forward, you know, the people who stood up, the people who were willing to sacrifice their careers or, you know, their reputations publicly, you know, to be open and out LGBT members um, and straight allies, um, those people will often be ignored you know, and it was just so I, I, I was happy and angry about it at the same time. So, Mark, we were talking before the show that you were able to serve and and be out and yes. be comfortable with that. And, and, and people um, that you worked with were fine with that. Yes. And talk about how that works. Um, I mean, was it that people, even though it was don't ask, don't tell. Um, I told. You told and that was perfectly fine. Um, no, uh, actually it wasn't. Um, 
like they said, they, and they talked about the Air Force core values, part of his integrity. And in the um, Navy, the, the, the three are honor, courage, and commitment. Um, before I joined the military, I, I knew about it, but I did not know, I didn't have an intrinsic understanding of what it meant to be so openly discriminated against. You know, and when I joined the military, I had, like I said earlier, I had to make a decision. You know, would I give up my personal integrity to sacrifice for an organization of this? Or would I, you know, be myself? And I decided it was more important to be myself. Change does not happen if you are not willing to sacrifice for it. You know, um, maybe I could not at the time make a large political statement um, because you're prohibited in doing that in the military. But I could definitely be myself. And in doing so... Uh, potentially impact uh, the opinions of others on an everyday basis. Very interesting. So I'm curious, do you guys think that the military is is going to change a lot now that <laughs> Don't Ask, Don't Tell well, is going to be repealed? I mean, do you think I, that honest, we're going to act differently? Well, honestly, I really feel like the military is a microcosm of society at large. I mean, you have the same types of issues, the same kind of a big level of diversity within the military, but yet the military, it's like the last stronghold for change. I mean, when it was, when the military became desegregated, I mean, there was a huge backlash, you know, like it, there was a lot of worry on what that would mean to, to readiness and unit cohesion and whatnot. But it, it still went through and the leadership adopted that positive that they were gonna that they were gonna abide by the rules and so people follow suit because it is a chain of command so if the leadership adopts a policy then people follow suit i mean i'm not saying that it's it's going to be without any incidents and whatnot but it's still it really matters what kind of leadership yeah the military if it's on paper it exists you know, so for, I mean, really, like everybody in the military will tell you until it's on paper, it doesn't matter, you mm-hmm. know. And as of right now, um, no, um, my summary of the don't ask, don't tell repeal brief, because we obviously knew about it beforehand. Um, you had three groups of people in, in any given audience, you know, the people who were gay, who cared, the people who were very anti-gay and the people who were just like ambivalent to about do a it. job, <laughs> you know. So at the end of the at the end of this brief, you know, my friend summarized it very well. He's like, you know, if you were gay. You were basically told, we won't kick you out for it, but you don't get any benefits, so you're basically status quo. If you were anti-gay, you are basically told, well, we don't really care about your opinion. And if you didn't care, you were just kind of told, well, you have to sit here and listen to this anyway. You know, so really until they give you all the benefits, nothing's really changed. I mean, you can't, even with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I mean... Yeah, you can't. The the threat of being kicked out for who you are is gone, and that is huge. I mean, you know, you don't not having to look over your shoulder and being able to date who you want is huge. But you can't have any benefits, just like you can't in the larger society. You can't get married to who you want. You can't. I mean, so that what that means in the military is that you can get stationed, you know, in California, and your partner is you know, stuck in Virginia and can't get stationed with you, you know, I mean, in those that, that have been married, let's say if they, they live in Massachusetts or something like that, even, even their spouses can't get benefits. No, no, No. because it's federally recognized. I see. I see. So I'm curious, do do you know of anyone that was discharged for being gay? Yes. Yes. And and how close were they to you? and, And what were, you know, how did that go about? I mean, this was early on in my um, career, so I was, I mean, I went in a month out of high school, 18. So it was early on when I first saw it, and I don't think I fully, I don't know if I was fully out to myself at that point, so I don't know how much I, I internalized it later on when I understood who I was. It was, but at the time, it was just like, this really happens? (laughs) Like, it was just kind of baffling. Um, it was a, it was a couple actually. Um, they had been, oh, they met each other, um, while they were overseas and they, oh, you could tell they were in love from the moment they saw each other. I mean, it was one of those rare instantaneous things that you see people go through, you know, and, um, they dated for a year and it was so difficult for them to not tell each other. I mean, when you find that kind of happiness, you know, you got to tell everybody about it. 
you know, and so they just decided so that they were going to come out to their commander and leave together, you know, and uh, they went to him and they were amazing professionals, you know, the commander basically begged them to stay. He was like, you know, I'll just act like you didn't say it. And they were like, no, because we, 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 we can't be without each other, you know, so. And, and Mark, you said that you were able to serve openly in the military. Mm-hmm. Did you ever find that you were treated differently because you were able to be open about it? Um, my first year was god awful. My first year, I learned what feelings of suicide felt like um, because I had made that choice to be open. Um, I was with Marines the entire time. I was in the Navy. You know, they're a pretty hardcore group. You know, um, so. Yes, my first year, people would not talk to me. People wouldn't, you know, um, associate with me. Um, There were tons of issues. However, um, through actions, through seeing how I was every day, um, things began to change. And afterwards, people kind of got over it. You know, most times in the military, the younger group, that is, the issues with the LGBT community are the same issues that we have when when we're dealing with something we've never encountered. It's just, you don't know. You don't know. It's the fear behind it. And until it becomes a human issue where you know somebody and, like, it's, you know, the world didn't stop (laughs) because they're gay. It doesn't matter. And my experience is more people, my peers are more upset that I didn't tell them or I thought that I couldn't tell them. Um, They were bothered that I had kept that from them and that, why can't you trust us with that? And it's just kind of, you never know how they're mm-hmm. going to react. And I think that was the worst part of it, is that these people wanted to be there for me, but I couldn't tell them. So I'm curious, where do you see this, This now that Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been repealed, where do you see the military as far as their treatment to the LGBT community maybe five years from now? I, I don't think it's going to matter. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be such a, why did it ever matter? Because there's obviously way more important things <laughs> that matter. And, like, you know. I would say within the overwhelming majority of at least people that I served with, it was a non-issue. So I think business is just going to go on as usual. I mean, you're going to have your enclaves of people that are, you know, I can't believe we did that. But what I find funny is that all these people are saying if they allow gays in the military, we're getting out. Well, are they going to get out now? And I don't yeah, think they and- are. I mean, that I, I think nothing disrupts unit cohesion more than having homophobic people disrupt the, you know, that, that tight-knit bond, because that's far more disruptive than having a gay person serve in your, in your unit and work, work their butt off. And Fund- Fundamentally speaking, you know, in every group of people, straight, gay, black, white, whatever the issues, there's always a bonehead. You know, there's always some guy (laughs) who doesn't know how to behave. You know, um, in the military, your sexuality, when you are in a professional setting, you mean, because sex in the military is something that's regularly talked about. It's it's a common thing. I mean, you have a lot of young kids who are hyped up on adrenaline regularly. But when it comes to, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, when it comes to dealing with a professional issue, your sexuality is something that does not matter. It is, an, it is an issue aside. As far as the actual organizational treatment of the LGBT community, the change will rest on the shoulders of those who continue to serve openly, who continue to display the necessary integrity, who, do t- who continue to display the actual core values of the military, you know, because they will reflect to their commanders, you need to cater to us, we are your people as well. Um, that change... Well, that'll take time. I I think it also really has to be enforced at the top. It really has, the leadership has to make it important for everybody to understand and be educated and and promote that and and have regular training and and whatnot. Because unless the leadership adopts it, it's it's not going to change fast enough. Well, in the studio is Mark, Andrea, and John, and they are military veterans, and they are here to talk about their appeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Thank you so much for, for coming in here and telling Thank your stories you. and joining Thank us you. tonight. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 
more variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. This year, MSU has a record number of international students. To talk about why people come from all over the world to MSU and what an American education means overseas is Peter Briggs. He's the director of MSU Office for International Students and Scholars. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So over 5,000 international students are, are studying at MSU this year. And I understand that MSU has the 10th largest number of international students in the U.S. Why are so many students choosing MSU? Actually, those numbers are last year's numbers, so I think we will have over 6,000 this next year. Um, I'd say first the academic quality. I think the rankings of worldwide universities, a lot of students pay attention to these rankings. Uh, MSU is in the top 100 universities in the world. They pay attention to that kind of thing, and special programs in business and, and engineering and other are very attractive. I think the quality of life, it's an affordable, safe community, uh, so it's not a big urban environment is another one. Uh, those are some of the reasons. And I understand, I, I remember hearing a story about um, the, the Chinese population. We were experiencing a lot of Chinese international students this year, um, and, and there was a various reasons for why we are seeing such a large number of Chinese American or Chinese international students. Can you talk a little bit about why people are choosing to come to the United States to study? Yeah, I think it's a, one sign, of course, is the rising middle class of China. They can afford to pay the full cost of out-of-state tuition for four years, and that's been, frankly, a remarkable economic story in the world. That's one issue. I think the liberalization of the U.S. visa policies to allow Chinese undergraduates to come here is another factor. Um, the reason a lot of them are coming to Research One universities is there's a cottage industry of agents in China that uh, a lot of people in China know the U.S. is a good place for higher education, but they don't know which are the good universities. They'll go to an agent, they'll pay the agent, and the agent knows enough to fill out an al- help them fill out an application and, and get them here. So those are some of the reasons that I think the big, big numbers have come within the last five years. It's been a big uptick. So I feel like when I've traveled overseas, people think of the USA in terms of Hollywood, Los Angeles, New York City. And so I'm wondering, are international students shocked when they end up at MSU at this land-grant university in the middle of the Midwest? Well, I hope they looked on the map before they actually get on the airplane. So I, are they shocked? I think the initial comments that we frequently hear is the clean air and the friendly people and the big campus. Those are the three consistent comments as people go up from the airport into the campus. Um, but I, I think they know what they're, I hope they know that they're what they're getting into in terms of uh, it, there's a strong sense of community here, but it's not the urban environment. It's not the bright lights in the big city like Chicago or New York. And how much more do international students pay in tuition versus an in-state student? Well, they pay out-of-state tuition, so it's the same fees that somebody from California or New York would pay. I see. And so we estimate that between tuition, room and board, books and supplies, personal expenses, health insurance, the total fees is 42000 a year. 
I see. And um, when when MSU is looking through applications, do they ever prefer the out-of-state applications or international applications to in-state based on how we're facing so many budget issues this year, that they're going to prefer someone that is going able to pay more tuition? Well, first, I don't work in the admissions office, but I can speak for Jim Cotter, who in the admissions office, and he would say, absolutely not. Uh, they are uh, never denying admission to a qualified Michigan student, and there is no quota system for uh, having out-of-state tuition. That being said, there has been a conscious movement by the Board of Trustees to increase the number of non-residents in the context that you don't want this to be just an extension of a Michigan high school. You really want the diversity and the breadth of people from all around the country and all around the world to be part of the educational and the experiential learning and living of what uh, um, MSU experience is going to be. And we only have a few seconds left, but briefly, can you talk about um, International Coffee Hour? Oh, that's why I started the Coffee Hour, of course. Uh, It's a place to gather. It's uh, when you think about how do international students deal with their problems, and it's they deal with their family and their friends. And and if their family isn't here, we're trying to create a community as a wellness model for people to make friends and connect and give a gathering spot for anybody who wants to be part of the international community. And it's a tradition. It's been going around eight years now. It takes place on Friday afternoons from 4 to 6 in the International Center. And it's a free cup of coffee. It's a lot of friendship. And it's a very well-attended tradition that we're very proud of. Well, Peter Briggs, thanks so much for joining us tonight at Exposure to talk about the international students here at Michigan State University. Thank you for having me. Now back to Impact Exposure. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Stephen Hyder. He is an MSU economist, and he's here to talk about how poverty is increasing in America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So the latest census data shows that the U.S. poverty rate is just over 15 percent, and that's the highest it's been since 1993. Why do you think poverty has risen? Uh, I think that's a pretty easy question, of course. We all are well aware that the so-called Great Recession that commenced in October of 2008 with the crash of the stock market, the housing market, unemployment's at a rate that we hadn't at a rate we haven't seen in a couple decades. Uh, keep in mind that in the U.S. we measure poverty simply as uh, what is the income in a household. We makes a few adjustments for the type of household it is. Income is low. People aren't working. That's the major source of their income. So with high unemployment, of course, in the U.S., we'll also see high poverty rates. And I noticed that in 1999, the median household income in Michigan um, was around or was it was thirty four hundred dollars above the national average. And then in 2009, it fell to almost four thousand dollars below the national average. So where does Michigan rank as far as the nation, as far as our poverty rates? It is true that Michigan has declined relative to the rest of the U.S. Uh, We used to be just above average in many dimensions. Now we're just below average. Uh, The reason why won't surprise people here in the state of Michigan. Uh, It's been a rough decade. Uh, In the state of Michigan, we shed jobs every year between 2000 and 2009. Last year was a statistical wash, um, but... And that was the best we had done in a decade. This year, if things continue as they are, we will gain jobs for the first time since 1999. Of course, we all know that the uh, Michigan has depended on the car industry for a long time. Uh, there were some difficulties through the 2000s. The whole country went into a recession in 2000. Michigan never really came out of it. In some sense, this has been good news with respect to the with respect to the Great Recession. Michigan, uh, we've had difficulties for a while. We've started to make adjustments before the rest of the country had. Uh, if you listen to the news, you'll hear of uh, some states having much bigger difficulties over the last two years. States like California and Illinois. Um, Our difficulties haven't been as severe, but they've been lasting a lot longer. But again, uh, there's reason for a lot of hope here in the state of Michigan. Again, this will be the first year we're going to add jobs in over a decade, and things are looking up. We have to remind ourselves of that. 
And, and I understand that Michigan lags behind the rest of the nation um, in college graduation rates as well. Um, have graduation rates been declining since 1993? As I said earlier in the show, um, you know, poverty rates are now um, just over 15 percent, and that's the highest it's been since 1993. So since 1993, have graduation rates um, been decreasing? No. Graduation rates haven't changed as much as we've had. Uh, they, they have changed a little bit, uh, but the main thing that Michigan has had a problem with is uh, retaining our college graduates. When you aren't uh, gaining jobs, uh, people who have a college degree have a lot of options, and they've had uh, better options elsewhere, and they've been leaving. A big part of us trying to upgrade our workforce not, is not just investing in college education for our uh, this citizens of the state of Michigan, but then having a job market so that they can stay here once they go to a school such as MSU. Or... So we've heard a lot of the buzzword, the brain drain. So people going elsewhere after they get you know, a degree from, from a Michigan university to go to a different state because that's where the jobs are. Does that impact poverty rates in Michigan at all, having people go elsewhere to find work? Uh, yes. Uh, again, what the poverty rate means is um, for a family of four, it's about $20,000. Uh, you have a family. Uh, what's the fraction of households of with family of four that has less than $20,000? If you are losing a lot of people who have the earnings capacity to, say, earn fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000, all you have left then are those who are in poverty. Not all you have left. You have a higher fraction of them left. So, yes, the brain drain absolutely affects the poverty rate here in the state of Michigan. But you would almost think that because people are going elsewhere for work, then there would be more jobs available in Michigan. Yes, but the people who are leaving are those who have the best job opportunities. Again, keep in mind, we've shed jobs every year for a decade. That's not good news for anybody in the state of Michigan. And the U.S. Census data also shows that one out of every four children in Michigan is poor. How does that impact the state in the long run? Those are, those are exactly the questions we want to know the answer to, and those are the questions that are hardest to answer. There's all sorts of – there's a lot of misconceptions about poverty, and there's a lot of misconceptions about poverty policy. Um, of course, this is a very political question uh, – political issue for people to deal to, – to talk about. Uh, there's a few things that one just has to remember, though. Our poverty rate is a measure of income. A lot of ways that we try to alleviate the problems of poverty is not by giving households income. That means, say, for example, if we're giving a household food stamps or housing and uh, uh, earned income tax credit, a very important part of the, our anti-poverty policy in the U.S., it doesn't affect the poverty rate. That doesn't mean that it's not an effective policy. It means that if you are poor, you now have some food stamps at home to help feed people. It's not going to bring you out of poverty, given the way that we measure poverty in the U.S. And that's true for a whole host of programs. Too often when people, for political bent, want to say, is this program effective or is that program effective, a lot of times that's a question that we should always ask. Too often it's asked by those people who just want to get rid of a particular program. We can't use a metric by which that program wasn't meant to help. So, for example, if we have a program like the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is a tax credit for those people who have low wages, it's not going to affect poverty the way we measure poverty. It doesn't mean that we have a broken poverty po measure. It doesn't mean that these policies aren't effective. They're just not meant to affect that population. Do these programs help people? Well, then it becomes difficult to assess in which ways do we think they help people and we need to be much more nuanced in our view of those programs. So a lot of people may see in the news recently that um, there are there have been new restrictions on bridge cards in Michigan. Um, it, it may be harder to receive that assistance. And, and this week, the state is ending cash welfare assistance to something close to 12,000 families. And so you're saying that a lot of these different services like cash welfare assistance and, and bridge cards isn't going to affect the poverty rates, just assisting those. Correct. If we have our, measure, our narrow measure of poverty is cash income to a household and we're not going to see more income to these households, that doesn't mean that those are bad policies. You bring up two very different policies. Let me talk about each of them individually. Bridge cards at casinos. In my view, of course, it is uh, frustrating if you watch somebody who spends their money in a way that you don't deem appropriate. 
Uh, if you look at the fraction of money that's spent at casinos for people on bridge cards, it's actually not that much. Do I think they should be? No. Do I want? Do I think we should have pol- um, straightforward policies that we can police to keep them from spending money where we don't think we should? Of course, we, we do that in the grocery stores all the time. Keep in mind, you can't put down a bridge card and buy cigarettes, alcohol, or prepared foods in most grocery stores. Why not add a few other things? If it keeps the policy more tenable for the rest of us, sure. But that was much a hullabaloo about nothing. Yes, it's incensing, but if we're really serious about things like gambling, keep in mind that we have a state-run lottery. We know who tends to play the lottery. And if we're really concerned about those sort of issues, well, there's much bigger fish to fry in that direction. The issue about time-living welfare is a very interesting question. As I'm sure a lot of people remember, probably not for this audience, in 1996, we changed welfare as we knew it. Um, In 1996, the director of the Department of Health and Human Services was so sure that the entire world was going to come crashing down when President Clinton signed the welfare reform, he quit overnight. He said, I want no part of this. Uh, at the time, liberals were saying this was going to be a travesty. Republicans were saying everything was going to be much better. Uh, like as usual, both sides were far too extreme. The fact is the world did not end in 1996. We did not see incomes plummet for the poor in 1996. The one thing, though, is in most states have uh, lifetime time restrictions. The interesting thing, though, to keep in mind is this. When most of the rest of the country put on their lifetime time restrictions, we were in a booming economy. We aren't here. Uh, It's as good as it's been in a decade, but I wouldn't call it booming. Uh, Was this the time? Should we entertain the idea of lifetime time restrictions? Given what we observed over the last decade in the rest of the country, absolutely. Was this the time to do it in the state of Michigan? I would think not. We really don't know what's going to happen to these 12,000 families. So early in our conversation, you were saying there's a lot of misconceptions about what poverty is. Can you talk about some of those misconceptions? Well, uh, every year the P60 comes out. The P60 is the geeky name for the poverty report. It tells you about what was the state of poverty in the U.S. in March. And every year uh, you can go to that Monday when the numbers are released to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or your favorite newspaper, and there's going to be a series of canned editorials written by the same people trying to interpret them. And the poverty measure is hated by everybody. Liberals will tell you it understates the true measure to which deprivation is being felt. Uh, Conservatives like always, will tell you the number of DVD players and TV players actually owned by these people who are so-called impoverished. And yes, I find most of that debate just to be silly. It's not because we have a broken poverty measure. It is we have a simple measure, a simple metric that we use to see how people are doing. Um, It's no more than that. It's no less than that. Uh, It doesn't tell you the extent to which we see deprivation in these households, but it's probably a pretty good indication that things aren't as comfortable as you might want. People then um, use the poverty measure to say we lost the war on poverty that was commenced in 1968 or why didn't we win poverty and – it's none of that. It's a simple measure. The fact is if you use this poverty rate, which is fairly arbitrary, oh, from last year to this year, according to this arbitrary measure, we're doing a little worse. Is it a perfect measure? No, but for this arbitrary measure, we are doing a little worse. That seems to be a useful statement to make. Poverty rates did go up. We should be concerned. Those people at the bo- There are more people at the bottom of the distribution. Um, we should take a second look at this and make sure that our our policies are such that these people can't they have a chance to get by. So I'm curious, being an economist and and studying poverty in particular, um, do you do you ever think of ways that we may be able to prevent poverty rates from rising? Of course. Um, what I would prefer to think about, though, so. My, my quick appeal was to not read too much into the poverty po- measure. So let's get away from talking about the poverty measure and let's think more generally about uh, helping in, uh, individuals. 
it is very clear that we have some social programs that are amazingly effective. Uh, it's quite clear that Head Start, preschool preparation for our poorest kids in this state, when you look at l- the long-term gains to these kids, it far outstrips any money we're putting into these programs. It's very clear that education is very important. Uh, it's no secret to anybody that your income, you know, a lot of people who are listening to this are expecting their income to be much higher by going to college rather than not going to college. With our state has made some decisions to cut back funding to education, to uh, making uh, cutting back the support of our in higher, uh, various universities, I think that is incredibly short-sighted. If we, we need, if you look at uh, one of my colleagues, Charlie Ballard, uh, does, has, speaks across the state about the state of Michigan, and I hope everybody gets a chance to hear him talk about how we've been doing. He makes comparisons to us in Massachusetts, the two M states. We were very similar 30 years ago. We're now much different. They have a much higher income than we have. They also have a much more educated citizenry. I think that's where we need to be thinking about. Too often in this country, we talk about spending money as if all spending money on any which thing is the same. It's not. Remember, there's such thing as consuming and investing. Um, we all believe that there's a difference between me as a household going out and buying a boat and me as a household going out and buying a house. We think one of them is an investment. We think one of them is not. Uh, spending is not a bad thing. But right now, more than ever, we need to be spending on places where we think it's an investment. And I can't think of a better place of investing than in our people. Cutting back our uh, expenditures is silly. And uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that I'm trying to say give me more money or give my university more money. Uh, why not we – in fact, the people who do are lucky enough to go to college are going to have higher incomes. Maybe they should be paying a higher tuition. But if they are, we need to give them the wherewithal to pay that higher tuition. We need to have increased access to student loans if we're going to have tuitions increased, which all the people listening to this know that tuitions have increased a ton. Student loans have not kept pace with that. That's where I think we're most misguided and looking for longer-term solutions in the state. Well, in the studio is Stephen Hyder. He is an economist and professor at MSU. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about um, poverty in Michigan and how the poverty rates have increased in America in the, over the past decade. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Now back to Impact Exposure. Chris McLeod. He's with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, and here he is here to talk about the proposal to start an Asian carp anti-hunger program. Welcome to the show, Chris. Well, hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good. So tell me a little bit about this Asian carp anti-hunger program. Well, the program itself is actually called Target Hunger Now, and uh, it's been around for uh, about a year. It actually is a spinoff of or an expansion of a very popular uh, humanitarian campaign that the DNR has uh, has worked with uh, for the last 16 years called Illinois Sportsmen Against Hunger, and that program is is a program in which we ask our deer hunters to donate some of their harvest uh, to meat processors, who then take that uh, venison and and turn it into a usable food product and ship it off to to food pantries, soup kitchens, and the like. And so uh, the, the Target Hunger Now is kind of an expansion program of that. Uh, we've we've been successful with uh, with venison in in Illinois, and so now we're hoping to add Asian carp to that uh, to that menu, not just for those in need, but but really for you know uh, high end diners or for you know average uh, home cooks. Um, I, I think really what the Target Hunger Now program is expanding on Asian carp at this point is much more of an education effort to educate the public on what this fish really is, how it lives, what it eats, and how it tastes. Because 
carp has a reputation problem in the United States, certainly here in Illinois. I'm sure for your listeners in Michigan as well, when they hear carp, it's not exactly the uh, the, the fish that has people come running to the dinner table. And so um, we're trying to educate the public on how good the fish can be uh, and, and really how easy it can be to be prepared as long as we can find a way or, or the market can find a way to to put this into a usable product. So I understand that you already had a public tasting event for Asian carp. I'm curious, what was on the menu and what were people's reaction to eating this invasive species? Well, certainly the star of the show was Asian carp, silver carp. Uh, We uh, have enlisted the help of a a New Orleans chef, or rather a Louisiana chef, Philip Parola, who uh, came to Illinois. He's been working with the fish for a long time. Uh, and has uh, has created some really tasty recipes. Um, we uh, we enlisted his help um, to uh, to serve up Asian carp in the form of of fish cakes. Uh, he also sautéed some in butter and uh, olive oil. It was really good. Uh, you know, you had your traditional sides for the for for everyone, including kids, green beans and and uh, yams and some stuff like that. But the Asian carp overall was a hit. We served over 350 meals at that event in Chicago last week. And and uh, even if um, not everybody in the room said, this is the greatest thing I've ever tasted, most of them said they were very, very surprised, pleasantly surprised as to how, how well the fish tasted. And ha- have you tried it? I have. It's great. Yeah, yeah. it's good. I mean, it, it really is a mild white fish, and so uh, it kind of takes on whatever flavors you want to marry into it. I'm certainly not a culinary expert like Chef Parola is, but uh, and we know that there's other uh, chefs throughout the, the country who have worked with this fish too. Um, but, you know, in terms of uh, of what I thought it would taste like or, or what it actually tasted like, it was very good. Um, you know, it tasted like a, like a, uh, almost like a crab cake of sorts. And when, when you, you said earlier that when people think of carp, they don't think of that is something that they would like to eat. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest complaints or reactions that you've heard towards the idea of eating Asian carp? Well, I don't think that there's any complaints about uh, about the the program or wanting to use this in a humanitarian effort or or market it to the point where people will buy it. Um, I think uh, the 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 reaction or the you know the kind of wrinkle your nose reaction towards towards Asian carp comes from the word carp. Um, you know, common carp has been around for hundreds of years in many uh, states across the United States. Certainly here in Illinois for the last hundred or so years. And there are big differences between common carp, the carp that people think of, and what Asian carp are. Common carp root at the bottom of rivers and streams in the mud. They eat worms and, and uh, other fish and, and uh, crustaceans and things like that. And so there has been a connotation with common carp to have kind of a muddy uh, taste. It's considered kind of a trash fish. With Asian carp, that's not their habitat. That's not what they feed on, and that's not where they live. Asian carp swim in the upper columns of the water, uh, and they are filter feeders. In other words, they don't bite on a bait and a hook. They filter plankton out of the water uh, through their through their gills, and um, and so they because of that they are they are cleaner than many fish. Uh, They are healthier than many fish. They don't have uh, the mercury levels that uh, other fish may have that are passed on when a fish eats another fish and so on. Um, they, they filter the basic blo- uh, you know, feeding block of life, which is plankton. And so they're healthy. They have a, a very nice oil content to them. They're high in omega-3s, which uh, is good for you. Um, and so that's the big differences between Asian carp and common carp. And uh, and that's why people are pleasantly surprised when they taste it, I think, is because they have this feeling it's going to taste like this muddy kind of dirty fish. And that's not at all what Asian carp are. So you mentioned that you'd like to see Asian carp being served in um, high-end diners. And, and I understand that Illinois already has been sending Asian carp to China because there is a large demand for this invasive fish, and um, they actually do use it as a delicacy in in high-end diners. Oh, absolutely. Our, our governor just uh, is uh, came back or is actually currently on a, a trade mission to China. He had Asian carp with a number of, uh, of um, um, uh, folks from, uh, from Illinois that uh, were in the area, and uh, he, he really liked it. Yes, it is very sought after in Asian and European markets. Um, 
one of the reasons why it's a difficult sell here, too, is because of the bones. It has lots of bones. And in the United States, people don't like to eat fish on bones. We'll eat other things on bones. We'll eat ribs. We'll eat chicken. But, but the United States, you know, Americans don't like to eat, uh, you know, fish and pick off of uh, fish, you know, fi- uh, pick fish off of bones. And so you have to find a way to get a end product to retailers, to, you know, grocery stores, to, you know, uh, food pantries or high-end restaurants. It, it really doesn't matter. Um, and, and there are folks that are working on that. Now, the Illinois DNR, um, just to be clear, you know, we are a science-based agency. We, we have a goal of controlling the Asian carp population, getting them out of, uh, out of the Illinois River system, protecting the Great Lakes, returning and restoring health to, uh, to our river system. We don't have any goal of creating a self-sustaining market. And we're, we as a governmental organization are not the ones that are going to lead the charge on a market. But what we do, what we are doing is educating the public on the facts of these fish. And the facts of these fish are that they are clean, they are healthy to eat, and they are mild tasting. Um, and so we feel like if we can educate the public, that that will maybe help to spur along a, a market that may come from an entrepreneur or, or private industry. And if if a market can be established, then we'll get help in removing these fish from the river systems. And that's, you know, that's what our goal is. And I'm curious, how have Asian carp impacted Illinois so far? Well, they've impacted a, a number of different places. I mean, Illinois is not the only place where Asian carp are. They're in the southern states as well. They were imported here back in the 70s, uh, uh, mainly to help clean catfish ponds. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, there were some major flooding impacts to the southern states. And, and when that happened, Asian carp uh, spilled over out of the ponds and into the river systems, and they've been kind of migrating ever since. Um, there are places on the Illinois River where nine out of every ten fish is an Asian carp. They eat like no other fish. They compete for food sources for, uh, with our native fish. And so because they breed so quickly and because they eat so rapidly, and I mean when I say eat rapidly, I mean consume 40% of their body weight a day uh, in plankton, um, you know, that's what hurts our river systems. That's what drowns out uh, our native fish. And, you know, we have a very strong and solid sport fishing industry in Illinois. Obviously, the Great Lakes is, is, is you know, beyond important, uh, not only to the Great Lakes states, but to the country and to the, to the world. It's the uh, largest freshwater body on earth. Um, so that's what we are trying to prevent. And we may never, ever uh, be able to eradicate Asian carp from uh, the Illinois River system or from other states, but we need to try to get them down to a very uh, manageable level. And, and so those are the, some of the efforts that we're undertaking right now. And I know I've talked to many people in Michigan about the threat of Asian carp getting into the Great Lakes. Um, what is Illinois' view of, of that threat and, and how um, you know, prevalent that may be, how, how much of a threat that could be, and, um, you know, what is the difference between Illinois' view and Michigan's view? Well, I don't think there's much in terms of, uh, much difference in terms of the overall goals. Uh, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you name the Great Lakes state, and we all have the same goal, and that is to protect the Great Lakes. And so Illinois is uh, one of many states uh, involved with the Asian Carp Regional Coordinating Committee. It's a, a group of federal, state, and local agencies who've come together to try to uh, solve problems and, uh, and, and you know, not only solve problems on, on the immediate uh, level, but, but solve them overall. And so uh, we all have our goals and our, and our responsibilities on that, uh, on that committee. Uh, Michigan is certainly a part of that committee. Um, and, and we as states and, and the federal government um, need to do everything we can um, to push back the migration to stop uh, Asian carp from establishing a, a, a population in the Great Lakes. And believe me, we're doing everything we can to make that happen uh, or to prevent that from happening. Um, And I know Michigan shares that view, too. Um, We're all working as one big team to do it. We hope that we we don't have to get to that that point. Um, And that's why we work every single day to, uh, you know, uh, on the ground, on the river systems, 
uh, both in Chicago and well downstream of Chicago, where the real populations exist in, uh, in Illinois, um, to make that happen. Well, on the phone is Chris McLeod. He's with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, and he was on the phone to talk about how Illinois is trying to use Asian carp to tackle hunger in the state of Illinois. Chris McLeod, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Emily. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and now is the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week features John Pollock. He is the author of The Pun Also Rises. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, Thanks, Emily. So first off, let's kind of talk about your background and what you did before you started writing books. I understand that you worked as as a speechwriter for Bill Clinton before you started writing. What was it like being a speechwriter for a president? Uh, writing for the president is uh, very exciting, uh, sometimes a lot of pressure, uh, but always uh, very interesting because you get an inside look at how the, the White House runs and, and how policy uh, meets politics. And speech writing is where the rubber hits the road because what the president says is, uh, gets a lot of attention. So talk about your book, Cork Boat. Boat. So the book is called Cork Boat, and you wrote that after you stopped becoming a speechwriter. Tell us a little bit about that book. Well, when I was uh, six years old, I decided to build a boat and uh, nailed together some orange crates and firewood and, and invited the whole neighborhood to the launch at the pond down on the corner. And I, I stepped aboard the, the boat, and it promptly sank straight to the bottom. Now, fortunately, it wasn't that deep. Uh, and I wasn't discouraged. I actually thought, well, I built a boat. I, the next one I, I build just has to be made out of something that is unsinkable. And so I decided that I would find out what you couldn't sink and then build a boat out of that. And and I settled on, on corks and asked my parents to start saving their corks from the wine bottles at, uh, at dinner. And they said, great, we're happy to do that. But, of course, I was growing faster than they were drinking. So it took 30 years. Uh, to save up enough corks, and eventually I got bars and restaurants saving uh, in Washington, D.C., and enlisted a fellow Michigander, Garth Goldstein, and the two of us designed and and built, with a lot of volunteer help, a 22-foot Viking ship entirely out of wine corks and and sailed it down the Douro River uh, across Portugal. And uh, the cork boat, uh, which is the book that I, I wrote afterward, uh, tells the story of the, the dream of building the boat, the struggles along the way, and our journey down the river and all the adventures that and, we had. And is that boat still up and running? Uh, the boat uh, carried us very nobly and ably down the river, uh, but uh, 10 years later uh, is no more. When we left it in Portugal, we put it in storage. Uh, it was taken out of storage uh, and put on display on the river there were a series of uh, heavy storms and floods, and the boat didn't fare uh, so well unattended. And uh, as a result, re- uh, word has reached me that the, the boat sails only in memory. So you're originally from Michigan, and I find it funny that in your bio you mentioned that um, you were once a traveling violinist on Mackinac Island. Yeah, I, I worked as a strolling violinist at Stonecliff, uh, which is on the... Uh, was on the other side of the island. It's owned by the Grand Hotel now. I think it's called The Woods. But it was a, it was a nice restaurant, and I just provided uh, dinner music uh, for uh, uh, guests at the restaurant for a couple of summers in the uh, mid-'80s. So now let's which is a long time ago. Right, right. So now let's let's get into um your new book, your newest book. This is called The Pun Also Rises. Tell us a little bit about this book and um before you do a reading of it. Sure. Uh The Pun Also Rises uh is the story of the pun and how it revolutionized language and changed history. And most people uh, think of, of puns uh, these days as, as a silly joke, something juvenile, something stupid, something corny. But actually, uh, puns have a, a long and noble history uh, over uh, the course of human affairs and played a critical role in the rise of civilization. And I, I'm happy to 
tell you uh, briefly how that uh, happened, if, if you're interested. Yes. Okay, so the big breakthrough that enabled the rise of modern civilization was the invention of the phonetic alphabet uh, about 1700 B.C. And I say that because uh, what it enabled people to do was transmit detailed ideas and information, not just over uh, distance, uh, but over time. And when you could do that, you could suddenly accumulate knowledge, and that's what people started to do. And after 150,000 years of basically being modern humans but not doing a whole lot, we started to do, you know, have a lot more progress in science, medicine, commerce, et cetera. And so the, the phonetic alphabet made that possible because before that you just had uh, pictograms and hieroglyphs, and, and they were very limited in what you could communicate. So the question is, how do you go from cave paintings uh, with, with eight buffalo on the wall and arrows and six of them to uh, uh, a more complex message uh, that uh, a contract say that says, I want to send 89 cattle to Baghdad on Thursday to be sold at this price at that interest rate uh, if, if the person needs to borrow money and get it in writing because I need the receipt. Uh, suddenly you need abstraction. And so the way that the scribes moved over thousands of years from uh, pictograms to phonetic alphabet uh, was by harvesting the, the, the sound value off of pictures. And so uh, they, they, they were able to break apart sound, symbol, and meaning and, and recombine them. So let's take an example. Uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Isabel. Isabel who? Isabel necessary on a bicycle? <laughs> Very nice. So, so what we're doing there is essentially what the scribes in Egypt and Mesopotamia did. Uh, we're doing it in the form of the knock-knock joke, but what they did was just take words and break apart their sounds and, and use those component sounds, is a bell, as opposed to Isabel, uh, and, and repurpose them. And that's uh, through a process of uh, increasingly sophisticated punning uh, and very conscious punning, they arrived at completely at a completely abstract uh, alphabet that was strictly uh, phonetic uh, in its character. And so that's how the pun enabled invention of the alphabet, which enabled us to transmit knowledge over time, which led to the rise of civilization. You follow me on that? I do. I do. So without further ado, would you be able to read an excerpt from The Pun Also Rises? Sure, I'll do that now. Now, just to, to set up the passage I'm going to read, in 1995, I flew down on a whim to the World Pun Championships in Austin, Texas. And the way it works is uh, you're set up with a it's, a, it's a tournament, and you're set up against an opponent on stage. There's a judge and a timekeeper. And they pick a topic, and you've got five seconds to make a pun on that topic. And then your opponent has five seconds, and it goes back and forth, back and forth, five-second intervals until someone misses, and then you're out. Or in the, in the event of a tie where no one goes out, it, it, it goes to an audience vote on quality. So I'm going to read a description of the, the first round uh, that, I, uh, that I undertook uh, in winning the championship. And my, my opponent was uh, – I, I had a bad draw, actually. He was a, a former champion. So uh, his name was uh, George McLuhan. So here's the excerpt. After reviewing the rules, the judge asked McLuhan to reach into a galvanized bucket and pull out a slip of paper, which featured one of the hundred or so topics on a list that my 31 fellow competitors and I had been given just minutes earlier. There had been too many to actually study but enough to make my mouth go dry with fear. What if I froze and couldn't come up with a single pun? The judge read McLuhan's slip aloud, air vehicles. George, why don't you go ahead and start, the judge said. Oh, all right, my opponent said. He looked so relaxed just standing there at the microphone, his shirt untucked, smiling at the crowd. And why not? He was a seasoned champion, and I was just some no-name walk-on from Michigan. If a helicopter had babies, McLuhan asked, would it be a baby Huey? It took me a moment to get it. Clever reference to both the cartoon duck and the workhorse chopper of Vietnam. He was going to flatten me. 
My mind flashed to all the aircraft hanging from the rafters back at the Henry Ford Museum. I hope I, I, hope I come up with the right flying machine, I said. Wait, wait. It was the judge holding up his hand. It's got to be a pun. In his Texas drawl, pun was almost a two-syllable word. The Wright brothers, I said, W-R-I-G-H-T. I hope I picked the right flying machine. A sudden, a sudden cheer swept the audience. The brawl was on. That was so plain to see, McLuhan said, grinning. I struggled to come up with a response, but saved myself at the last second with a crude pun on Fokker, a defunct Dutch aircraft maker. McLuhan didn't flinch. I guess, I'm, I guess if I'm going to be 52 next week, I'm never going to see 47 again, he said. Well, I said, scanning the audience, I'm looking for a liberator out there. McLuhan toyed with me. This guy's pretty good, he said. I was hoping he'd be one bomber. I was finding my rhythm. You don't think I'd take the flight, do you? I don't know, he answered casually. You're just up here winging it. You too? In its economy and perfect congruence of sound and meaning, a pun couldn't get any purer. I could pun for an entire lifetime and never make a better one, ever. It was a knockout punch, and the crowd roared, but that rangy Texan refused to fall. And uh, the round actually went uh, the full seven minutes, and I ended up uh, winning on, on an audience vote and, and going on to, to four other rounds uh, to take the championship. And when you win, Emily, the, tr the trophy that they get you is the gilded, the, the trophy that they give you is the gilded rear end of a horse. And I still have that trophy today. <laughs> very, very nice. Well, again, for the Michigan Storytelling segment, on the phone is John Pollock. He is the author of The Pun Also Rises and also is the winner of the 1995 O. Henry Punoff World Championship. John Pollock, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Emily, thank you very much. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.